You don't have to be a French noble to visit the Loire Valley Chateau country of France, but you might feel like one when you do. Walk through the formal gardens at Villandry and discover how flowers can convey the language of love. So they have recreated all sorts of flower beds indicating the different type of love, the jealous love, the crazy love, the language of love through the flowers. Or hang out at a pub in rugged Brittany and you're likely to learn a few new steps. And you can learn to dance with local. Whether you know it or not, they'll take you by the little finger and you'll just get to dance around with them. Plus, author Leslie Carroll puts a spark in your historical sightseeing with juicy backstories about old world royalty, like when George I married his cousin. They hated each other on sight, and it was a dreadful marriage that ended in divorce. But it was so much fun to write about, and it changed the kingdom. It's all just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Hop a two-hour train ride from Paris, and you can find yourself in lands of castles and Celts. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, our guides will take us deeper into the chateau country of the Loire Valley, where some of Europe's grandest estates are framed by formal gardens that you can visit. We'll also investigate the real scandals behind nine centuries of Europe's most notorious royal marriages with author Leslie Carroll. And for a walk on the wild side, guides from Brittany will recommend ways to engage all your senses as you explore the Celtic corner of France. Let's start out about an hour and a half south of Paris with Danielle Fermineau. She's here to take your calls about exploring the beautiful countryside of the Loire Valley. Our phone number, 877-333-7425. Danielle, thanks for being with us again. Hello, Rick. Danielle, you've been leading Americans around the Loire Valley for a long time. When we think about the Loire Valley, you have the castles, the chateau, these a long time ago were for defensive purposes, but when France was established as a country, and it was established as a country before most other European countries, it was stable in the interior and you no longer needed the fortified chateau, but you still needed an escape from Paris if you happened to be a king or a, rich, a very rich person. Uh, you needed a place where you can go hunting. You needed something nice to give your mistress. Uh, there's a lot of reasons to have a chateau, and today these chateaux are giving us a wonderful look at the history and the culture of France. My challenge as an American tourist in the Loire is to choose a variety of chateaux. So I don't see all similar chateaus, but you can see a medieval-flavored one. You can see a defensive one. You can see a, one with great gardens. Uh, you can see one that is more of a hunting lodge. If you were doing a, well, a good variety of chateaus, what are three or four different kind of chateaus you might want to see? Well, certainly you would start with Chenonceau. Chenonceau, which the is the, the very elegant, graceful one. Mm -hmm. Chambord, the very spectacular big one. But then, as you go towards the estuary of the Loire River, you may see other chateaus that are maybe older and even more interesting. Like, for instance, the city of Saumur. Somebody who would like not only to see a castle, but know a little bit more about hunting, about the military aspect of this area. In Saumur, there's the famous horse riding academy, okay. which is one of the pride of France. You know, the black cadre of Saumur. Which S, is that's S-A-U-M-U-R, Saumur. S-A-U-M-U-R, yes. Okay. And that would give you more of the hunting and the fortified and the older castle. Yes, yes. Okay. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Danielle Ferrenu. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And we're talking about the Chateau of the Loire Valley. And Janice is on the line from Walnut Creek, California. Janice, thanks for your call. Oh, yes. Question I do have about the chateaus. Um, I wonder, my husband loves the chateaus, but he doesn't like just to go from room to room looking at decor. Are there some that perhaps have museums inside with maybe artillery exhibits or maybe hunting lodges or something like that instead of just the um, the normal decor and gardens that, that I've seen in the past? Well, you have the Chateau de Cheverny, C-H-E-V-E-R-N-Y. Cheverny yes. is also a museum of hunting where you find hundreds of trophies, all sorts of uh, old uh, weapons, uh, uh -huh. and most of all, the beautiful dogs for hunting. So this is interesting to see. 
the Chateau de Cheverny. Cheverny, C-H-E-V-E-R-N-Y. And you know, Janice, I am so excited to be going back there because we're going to actually be there at 5 o'clock when they feed the dogs. And it is crazy. I mean, uh, Daniela was describing the beautiful hunting lodge and all the trophies and stuff. But these dogs are so obedient and they're so hungry. And the man comes with all this raw red meat. The dogs have to be obey, obey, obey. And then he tosses that red meat in there and they go crazy. And to see all these hunting dogs having their feeding frenzy at 5 o'clock, that's more fun than going to the aquarium when they're feeding the seals. I'll tell you, it's a memory you'll never forget. (laughs) So Chevrony would be good for your husband. And I like this question because there's a lot of husbands that just don't get it when it comes to elegant architecture and beautiful (laughs) things on the wall, you know. And another uh, fun thing to do, which I was just quite impressed by, was at Chambord. Chambord is the biggest castle, 440 rooms. Out in the back, there's a new medieval pageantry exhibit with knights on horseback actually jousting and demonstrating all of the martial arts of the Middle Ages. Yes, yes, exactly. And uh, in summer, you can also see um, a medieval tournament. They show their best horses, they show the way they were dressed, and they show some of the important um, figures that the horses had to perform for different activities, either for parade or for military purposes. So, Janice, you've got your husband. He's going to see the, the dogs eating raw meat. I mean, what husband's not going to like that? Oh, you can, I'm sure that sounds like a hit. you got pikes and swords and halberds and armor and shields clashing with each other as the horses run by. And then also, when he does that, then you've got to say, OK, my turn. We're going to go to Villandry for the beautiful gardens. And I think <laughs> Villandry is the... I'm not into gardens that much, but I'll tell you, the gardens at... How do we say it in French? Villandry. Villandry. The gardens there are... Wouldn't you say, Danielle, those are the best in the Loire? Yes. Uh, the garden of Villandry is something really spectacular. It's a garden for flowers, of course, for the beauty of the flowers, of the colors. But it's also interesting because it reflects what was one of the entertainment of the past, the language of love through the flowers. So they have recreated all sorts of flower beds, indicating all the different type of love, the jealous love, the crazy love, the cheated love, you know, with different colors and different shapes. Oh, my goodness, Janice, I can see your husband getting excited right now. The jealous love, the crazy love, the cheating love. The shape of a knife, you know, a a knife blade with red flowers indicating the blood. And there's a little video in the chateau you can watch first, and then you pick up a little board that introduces every part of the garden. There's the medicinal garden where you can see how you'd stay awake or how you'd go to sleep or how you'd get rid of a, a lover you didn't want to have around anymore. Lots of medicine. So that would be a lot of fun. And then... You know, if your husband is still looking for something interesting, a lot of guys really like the Leonardo da Vinci models that are turned into actual, you can touch them, you can play with them models. So you go in Amboise, and that would be your best home base as far as I'm concerned, the town of Amboise. Take your husband, after you've seen the gardens, and he has to enjoy the gardens. Then you take him to Leonardo's house, and you can see better than any place in Europe Leonardo's designs, all of his early helicopters and his uh, different kinds of... uh, Double helix and machinery and so on and pumps and so on, all made in models that you can turn and crank and enjoy watching in action. And then I think the capper would be a hot air balloon ride. Danielle, tell us about a balloon ride across the Loire. Well, uh, you can choose uh, the city. There's quite a few cities where they offer this type of ride. And of course, it's uh, generally early in the morning when the sun rises. Mm -hmm. And so you take off and silently you fly over those fantastic villages, over the river, and you see the sun coming mm. and reflecting in the river, and this is something absolutely And to see Chenonceau yes, and Chambord from the sky. Yes. Would you be able to see Villandry from the sky also? It depends on the ride you take, but probably, yes. Villandry. But you wouldn't be able to see the yes. crazy love or the jealous love. Or well, the... You would be <laughs> a little bit too high. you got to go there for that. Yes. And then at the end of the day, of course, you need a nice dessert. And uh, describe a tart tatin. Oh, the tartatin. Tartatin has been a, a, a cooking mistake at the beginning. It's uh, um, a young girl who was uh, supposed to cook uh, an apple pie, and she made a mistake or she just dropped that pie on the ground. I don't know what she did exactly. So she picked up the pie and she put it upside down. 
and it happened that uh, it, it was even better than uh, the first version. Oh, so tartata is a dough which is cooked with the apples on the top, and it's a little bit caramelized with the sugar, and it comes generally with a little spoon of fresh white cream or mm. vanilla ice cream. So many delicious dimensions yes. to the Loire Valley. There you go, Janice. Plenty of uh, reason to get your husband to take you to the Loire. Wonderful. Thanks for your call. I think I need to start planning a trip. <laughs> okay, bye now. Bon, You're welcome. Bon voyage. Au revoir. Au revoir. Danielle Farineau is our guide to the Chateau country of the Loire Valley right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Terry's on the line in Iowa City, Iowa. Terry, thanks for your call. Uh, hello, Danielle and Rick. Bonjour. Bonjour. I am interested in organizing a small group and a tour of the Loire River Valley, and we'd like to do it by bike. I think we would probably start out in Paris for a few days and then hopefully take the train down to somewhere to start and wind our way around and wherever we wind up, take the train back to Paris. Hmm. We would particularly enjoy going to sort of out-of-the-way, more out-of-the-way towns rather than any of the major sites. And what are what you might be able to recommend for that. First of all, Danielle, are there bike paths or would he be biking on the roads? They would be biking mostly on the roads, and this is a little bit dangerous. But the, you could take small roads instead of big roads, but it's still, you're going to be with traffic, uh, so that would be one thing to consider, Terry. Yes, uh-huh. I understand that. Now, my favorite home bases are not secrets. There's Amboise on the east end and Chinon on the west end. C-H-I-N-O-N, two relatively small towns, but they're not villages. Also, it's uh, quite nice to stay at the village at Azeliridou. It's very beautiful, and that's sort of the fantasy fairy tale reflecting gardens kind of uh, chateau. Is it uh, possible to uh, get a bike once you get down there to arrange for bikes? Yes, there's different companies that are offering this type of service. Well, thank you very much. Okay. You're welcome. Au revoir. Au revoir. Au revoir. Danielle, when you're thinking of local cuisine in the Loire, what would some dishes that you'd want to order for sure? Uh, for sure, uh, there's a specialty, which is the hill of the Loire. You know those... Oh, the eel. The eel. Out of the river. Matelote d'anguille in French. That means the eel is fished early in the morning by the fishermen. They are uh, limited to only a certain number of fish. And you cook it in red wine. And it comes with vegetable, and this is a specialty of the Loire. It's absolutely excellent. Danielle Ferrino, merci bien for a beautiful look at, at your welcome. corner of a beautiful part of France. Thank you. Thank you. If only these palace walls could talk. Leslie Carroll reveals the colorful stories behind many notorious royal pairings from medieval times till now. That's coming up in just a bit on Travel with Rick Steves. Let's extend our stay in France to experience its more rugged Celtic corner with guides to the down-home culture and sights of Brittany. Our number is 877-333-RIC as we discover more fun ways to enjoy the many sides of France. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by the European Union Delegation to the USA. Tips about traveling in Europe and information about the EU are available at euintheus.org. Leslie Carroll dishes up the real dirt on centuries of notorious royal marriages in Europe in just a bit. Right now on Travel with Rick Steves, let's get a little contrast from the world of high culture and palaces with guides to the rugged northwest corner of France. 
Brittany is the Celtic corner of France. It promises visitors plenty of mysteries and misty weather with an ample supply of good food, music, and conviviality. Mark Seymour was born across the channel in Britain, but today he makes his home in the rocky hills of Brittany. And Virginie Moret is a born and raised Breton. There are guides today as we take a deeper look at Brittany. Virginie and Mark, thanks for being with us. Thank you. Thank you. Virginie, first of all, just how would you describe Brittany? What is it? Well, Brittany is very different from the rest of France. There's, you will find uh, rough people, and because of the climate, we have harsh weather, beautiful weather sometimes, but at times rough harsh weather. Rough people and rough climate. Yes, you have okay. to adapt to the land where you are. And um, this is a place where you'll have people with a caractère, the personality that is very strong. They have their ideas, and you can't change their way easily. Uh, the Breton people also move a lot. You see a lot of Breton people anywhere you go in the world. So we are people who like to travel. We have coast. I mean, Brittany is not an island, but we are surrounded by three, you know, big pieces of, of a sea. And we are people who, who love to travel. So we expatriate really well. Where are the major Britain communities outside of France? You actually, uh, I used to study a little bit of the Breton language. And supposedly we have more Breton speakers in New York than we have in Brittany. So I do not know about that. I think that's something that the Breton are Britain proud speakers. to say. Yes, well, but there's not many Britain But there are a lot speakers, of them. If you if you find a crepe stand in yeah. uh, in New York, it's probably Britain someone right. originally okay. from Brittany. And where do you live in Brittany? Uh, Quimper. Quimper is in the southwest of Brittany. Okay. And a summer home in the northwest, in oh, the Baie so de Morlaix. You, you summer the and sea. you winter in Brittany. Yes. Uh, True People Brittany. love the sea in Brittany. Ah, right. And Mark Seymour, you're from England, uh, but you're from the uh, Celtic part of England, from yes. the, the southwest of England. How did you end up in Brittany, and, and why do you choose to live there? Um, I moved back to Europe about three and a half years ago. I'd been living in the States for a lot of years. Just had that inclination to go back to home territory. Britain, unfortunately, had become too expensive for me, uh, particularly my part of Britain. So Britain the, became too expensive, the southwest, it Devon and Cornwall. very, very expensive. It, uh, why is that? Prices, because it's all a tourist destination and sort of resorts for wealthy people in London? Became very popular. London's expanding. Yeah. People moved down to the oh, West okay. Country. Yeah. You wanted to mm-hmm. stay in a Celtic region, but you went across the English Channel to Brittany. Exactly, exactly. And I find that Brittany, to me, it's a land of myths and legends, just like Devon and Cornwall. How so? Standing Stones. Um, Virginie mentioned the coastline, you know, pirates, piracy, wreckers, uh, lighthouses. We have the legends of the King Arthur, King who Arthur. spent some time King in Arthur, Brittany. I thought yeah. he was just a, a myth of uh, Cornwall, but he's a oh, myth of have, uh, Brittany. We have Brittany him too. too. Yes. All right. Yes, absolutely. And talk about the Standing Stones, because you think about Standing Stones, Stonehenge-type things all over southern England, but in Brittany also. Oh, many, many more. Many, many more in Brittany. It's the epicenter when it comes to Standing Stones. Thousands and thousands and thousands. Of standing stones. Really? Now, so if you're in France and you want that wonder of Stonehenge and you're going to be in France, Karnak is the place, right? Karnak is, uh, is it's a World Heritage Site. Um, there are approaching 4,000 stones in various alignments and burial mounds scattered all over the Karnak area. Mm-hmm. But there are other very significant sites scattered all over the peninsula of Brittany. My favorite is a place called Saint-Just. Um, it's one of the smaller ones. I think it's some little Breton's uh, shopping mall of uh, standing stones going back 7,000 years. Every single stone in this alignment is of a different color, different shape, a different size. And I think it was somebody's sample shop 10,000 years ago. Definitely. And you can walk in your own backyard. You just go for a small walk and you'll find a menhir, a standing stone. Everybody has their own. Menhir? Menhir. In in French? Menhir. And in English we say menhir? Menhir. Right. Okay. So that's a single standing stone. Mm -hmm. Yes. That's been there for 4,000 years, 5,000 years what? In Britain, two and a half to four and a half thousand years. Okay, Um, now I'm talking to a Brit here, and we're talking about you leaving Britain for Brittany. How did that happen? Why is Brittany called Brittany when you're living from Great Britain? It's Little Britain. Um, It goes back to the days when uh, the Romans were basically naming groups of people all over what was to them the unknown world. The word Britton or Bresson um, came into play for a lot of people who were occupying that part of, of what. Oh, so the Romans outside that, so, of the Gaulish. So, so that was just basically saying people who are way out in the sticks. Absolutely, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's yes. the a- ancient Roman for yes. hicks, yes. hillbillies. Oh, I'm I'm talking like a Parisian. Forgive me. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about Brittany beautiful corner of France, Mm -hmm. uh, highly sophisticated, highly cultured part of Europe, with two people who uh, really, it sounds like, have Brittany in their blood, Virginie Moret and Marc Seymour. 
Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Stacy's on the line from Sugarland, Texas. Greetings. Thank you. I am a huge Celtic music fan, and I would love the chance to hear some live traditional Breton music. I also play the Scottish Highland Pipe, and I would love to take some lessons and learn some of the Breton style. How would I go about researching that? Um, you'll find uh, uh, Celtic music right across the peninsula of Brittany. But there's a, a world-class, hugely famous uh, festival that takes place on the southwest coast of Brittany every single year. Um, and Where's it, it's that? At the Le... Festival Interceltic de Lorient. De Lorient. De Lorient. L-O-R-I-E-N-T? Correct. Okay, there's the town. I got you. Which is the biggest in the world. And you have uh, people coming from all of the Celtic festivals. The biggest yes. Celtic festival yes. in the really? world. Yes. Oh, now that's yes. very important, Stacey. Yes. Lorient. L-O-R-I-E-N-T. The, the big jamming together of all Definitely. the Celtic musicians. But if you come in the summer in, in Brittany, you can learn the music and the dance. And we have lots of what we call festnos which is a Breton word for uh, night, feast, fest, nose. And you can learn to dance with local, whether you know it or not, they'll take you by the little finger and you'll just get to dance around with them and listen to the accordion and all of the other, uh, the new, all of the, the backpipes, everything we have. And You know, some of the language might have had a tough time surviving, but the passion for Celtic music survives very well in Galicia, in Spain. Mm-hmm. Yes, I definitely. just felt so Irish there. To me, it was just a beautiful sort of connection of Spanish and Irish culture. And you have it, of course, in Cornwall and Devon, in southwest England, where the language died, but the Celtic tradition is alive. Of course, Wales and Scotland and mm-hmm. Brittany. The Roman people just pushed us all over when they conquered, and we got stuck in the extremities, the western extremity, northwest of Spain, of uh, France, That's right. and so the then Celtic people left. Were, we were stayed pushed. there, and yeah. maybe and, you know, yeah. but Asterix, Asterix, Asterix Gaulois, yeah. yeah, Asterix. Yeah. So Gaulois. maybe that was the hard to live off of land, the land that was more rough and difficult to farm. That was not as interesting, maybe. So for the, the Romans conquerors. decided, mm-hmm. uh, we'll give it to the let the barbarians hang out there, and the Romans didn't try to take it, and you mm-hmm. guys were tough and not worth the trouble. And wound up playing bagpipes on far distant hillsides, yes. Stacy, there you go. Excellent. I, I look forward to, uh, to expanding my repertoire sometime <laughs> very soon. <laughs> Have fun on your trip, Stacy. Thanks for your call. Thank you. And Lisa's on the phone in Puyallup, Washington. Lisa, thanks for your call. Thank you so much. Um, I just wanted to share that we spent a week in Brittany last fall, and um, we had a wonderful time. We we did go to Kemper, and we especially loved the folk art museum there. The costumes were wonderful, and the art was very interesting. They were, in fact, doing a comparison between um, the art in the southern England and, and in Brittany and doing sort of a trade-off and matching costumes to the art, and it was really fascinating. Lisa, excuse me, is that a permanent exhibit in the folk museum in Kemper? Well, I think it is not a permanent. It is a temporary exhibit. Actually, Rick, I can answer that for you. I mm-hmm. went to the same exhibit, mm-hmm. and it was superb, wasn't it? It was beautiful, wonderfully yes. done, and it was a temporary. Okay, um, but there it, is a folk art museum where you can see similar quality uh, examples of, of uh, traditional very, very Britain culture. Yes, it, the um, museum actually started with very early, actually pre-Roman artifacts, and but the costume part was what was especially interesting to me with... You can see all the very, very fine work of the Breton costumes and, of course, the headpieces, the headdresses, mm. and their um, very interesting um, progression over the years. It was quite a specific exhibit, but very even interesting to my husband. Even interesting to your husband. <laughs> wow, write that one down. Hey, Lisa, you, I have a tough time, to be honest, uh, differentiating from all the towns that are in Brittany. I mean, there's a lot of attractions, but what stands out in your mind after your experiences of uh, two or three places people should be sure to have on their list when they're going to visit Brittany? Well, um, we really enjoyed Dinard. I know that it is thought of as a resort town and maybe sort of written off. Now, However, now, by the way, Dinard is right, it's near Mont Saint-Michel, D-I-N-A-R-D, up on the, the north northeast I, coast. Yes, yeah. it's just across the bay from Saint-Malo. Right. And in fact, it, it is and was a resort town, uh, a Belle Epoque at the turn of the century. Mm-hmm. Many beautiful homes were built there, and they're in a very interesting Dinardais style. Uh, they have their own style, and they're just very... Um, evocative of another era and there is this walk that goes all along the coastline and the coastline is very 
jagged and interesting mm. and all these tumbled stones and little inlets, and it's called the Sentier de Douanier. Mm -hmm. It's the custom officer's walk. So mm. the custom officer would walk that every day to see if any ships had come in. So, of course, they could assess, you know, duty on them. Yeah. And it's a very beautiful walk. I think if it was raining, it could be dangerous, some parts <laughs> of it. But, um, but it takes you back in history, and it makes you feel like you're a part of another time. And so we really, really love Dinard. Now, is, the, is the attraction of Dinard because it's sort of a, a resort town from the Belle Epoque from around the year 1900? Yes. I, so you I, got that fancy, is that the Dinardesque uh, architecture you're talking about would yes. be resort-style architecture? Definitely, and you would have a lot of, you have nice views over Saint-Malo, and there is a, now Very a nice. famous film festival, too, in Dinard. Right. And what's your other favorite spot, Lisa? Mm, I would recommend, if you were in Dinard and you visited Saint-Malo, there's a, a little boat that takes you across the bay. It's it's, you know, it's one of those places that's light on museums and heavy on experience, <laughs> I guess. Um, so, but then you go over to San Malo, and I think it must be the original salted butter caramel. So, <laughs> you know, they're Coming very back to food. Yes, they've become very popular, you know, here in the U.S., but they've been making them in San Malo for a long, long time. And so it's for foodies, I think, right. that mm -hmm. you should go there for the seafood. And the salted butter caramels. <laughs> and I just love your idea. Not so great on museums, great on experiences. Yeah. And there's a lot of experiences. Lisa, thanks for your call. Thank you very much. Yeah. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about Brittany, and our guides are Mark Seymour and Virginie Moray. Mark and Virginie, you know, I've heard that when you're looking for Brittany, there's a big difference between the culture you'll find in the interior and along the coast. Virginie, what's the deal with that? Well, we have two different parts in the Breton language, the Armor which is the sea, the coast, and the Arguat, which is the forest and the land. And not so long ago, I mean, we're talking about the beginning of the 20th century, these were definitely two different worlds. Some people who lived in the Arguat, even though they lived 10 miles from the sea, they would have never seen the sea. I mean, we're talking wow. about time we didn't have cars. Right. And also the language. We have different languages. And what was spoken in the middle of Brittany, the land, the forest part, was very different from what was spoken on the coast, which was more Breton, and Breton as different. And inside the land, they were talking more like a, a form of French. So to this, even today in this modern world, are there, are there people who are friends and so on, who one would be from the coast and one would be from the interior that are actually culturally different? Actually, I'm actually from the interior of France, and my husband and his family are from the, the sea. And there's oh, a, so your, your family is a good example of this. Definitely. And there is an ongoing joke. Obviously, we had it at the wedding. But after being married 10 years, we still have it today <laughs> where I'm not from Brittany because Breton was never spoken. And, you know, actually what they call the crepe, we talk about the crepe and how we yeah. have the savory crepe and the sweet crepe. Right. And where I come from in the center of Brittany, we have a different word. We have the galette, galette. which is with the buckwheat flour. Right. But no, in his family, we call them crepes. So I said, <laughs> how do you make the difference between... Salty, savory crepes, and sucré, and then the sweet crepes. What's the difference? And the other funny part with my family is that when my uh, husband meets my uh, grandmother for the first time, he could not understand some of the words she was using because within this is Brittany, within You're, Brittany, so it's French, but it's patois, so it's kind of okay. a. Somebody told me once that if you want true traditional Brittany, you've got to remember historically the coast had been sort of colonized by the big city people in the modern world but the interior is where the old traditions have survived more vividly. Definitely. Very rural area. Okay. Mm -hmm. Mark and Virginie, let's just close with, take me to one, what, what would you say, Mark, is probably the most uh, remote and exotic and dramatic corner of Brittany? To me, I would say uh, a place up in the Black Mountains, up in, uh, in Western Brittany, there's the highland. It's not mountains, but large hills. And there's a particular one called Le Mont Saint-Michel. And uh, on top of this singular hill, sticking in the middle of this beautiful, beautiful moorland, um, you have a chapel, uh, which is uh, seven or 800 years old. 
Uh, it was also actually, I might add, the site of a, a German radar installation during the Second World War. But it's dramatic beyond belief. You have panoramic views right across uh, the moorland of uh, so Western moor is a va- You see a lot of that where you come from in southwest That's England, right. these That's vast right. common grounds. And at a high point, there's an 800-year-old church called Mont Saint-Michel, like the famous abbey. Mm-hmm. Exactly. But different. Very different. Small, okay. um, hardly used now. It's quite a walk to get up uh, there. Um, yes. But the views are spectacular. It's La Saint-Michel? La Montagne Saint-Michel. Okay. And... You know, when I look at the map, I see these islands way off to the west, and it must be wild out there where the two seas come together off the far west tip of Europe. The closest to the United States you can be is on Wesson. Oh, and here we go. We Ile de Wesson. Wesson. And to get there, you need to take a boat, and it's really rough sometimes, but this is a place where you are far from it all. People live like they've been living maybe 200 years ago. You can stay in a small bed and breakfast, really, really cozy, Really nice, even when it's uh, raining. And when you go to that f- the western part of Wesson, where the closest part to the United States, between the U.S. and France, that's yeah. the Atlantic Ocean we only have there, you see the rocks. And you can imagine how so many ships have been, you know, yeah. have sunk there. And they actually got the wood. There is no tree on this island because of the harsh condition, the wind. The trees do not grow there. So where would they get their wood from? They would get it from the shipwrecks. They would harvest it from the shipwrecks. Yes. So there's a sense of history there. Does it go? How Definitely. far back does that go? This is a long time ago because this used to be the Rail de Wesson. Le Rail de Wesson is what we call this big, uh, the channel we have here where the big boats would come by. Oh, okay. Uh, we have sayings for different islands because they're so rough. I mean, living in Brittany is already rough people, but if you're on the islands, it's even rougher. And qui uh, voit Wesson, whoever uh-huh. sees Wesson, voit son sang. Sees his blood. Whoever goes to this island is going to see Whoever his own sees blood. Whoever the just sees the island sees it, yes. is, is bound to see his qui, own blood. Qui voit Wesson voit son sang. Such a tough condition, but it's a beautiful place to Do you think to it's visit. worth going there? Oh, I yeah, went a couple of times, more than a picnic? couple of times, and I came back alive. Yes. Very so. good. Okay, <laughs> that's, that is, if you, you can't miss it on the map because it's the little chunk of land off of the west tip of the west tip mm-hmm. of the west tip of Europe. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Mark Seymour and Virginie Moray, and we've been exploring Brittany. Merci bien. Merci. Merci beaucoup. Kenavo. Kenavo, what is that? Kenavo is goodbye in the Breton language. In Breton? Yes. Teach me one more Breton word. Degemermat and Brezonek, Rick. Degemermat. Degemermat. What is that? Welcome. Welcome. Welcome to Brezonek, Brittany. And how do you say Brittany in Britain? Brezonek. Brezonek. Yes. I'm learning all the time. (laughs) One of the fun ways to make history come alive in your travels is to visit famous palaces and castles of the old world armed with the stories of the royal characters who lived and died right there. Leslie Carroll joins us next with juicy stories she's unearthed about the clashing personalities of infamous royal couples from Peter II and Catherine the Great to the schemes and trials of Catherine de' Medici, Eleanor of Aquitaine, the Tudor dynasty, and right up to Charles and Diana. Leslie dishes on nearly a thousand years of royal couplings in her books Royal Romances, Royal Pains, Royal Affairs, and Notorious Royal Marriages. She joins us next for a little royal blather on Travel with Rick Steves. Anyone sightseeing their way through Europe will see castles, gardens, palaces, and jewelry of centuries of kings and queens. Through so much of its history, most of Europe was ruled by a handful of royal families. Leslie Carroll has been checking into the stories of these royal bigwigs. She joins us now on Travel with Rick Steves to share some of the juicy personal stories behind royal marriages, from Eleanor of Aquitaine in the 12th century to Charles, Prince of Wales, today. Leslie, thanks for joining us. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you for having me. So now, this book of yours, you've chosen 32 different royal couples, starting with Louis yes. VII and finishing with Charles and Di. Of course, Henry VIII gets six chapters, right? Yeah, he's a perennial. He's an evergreen, and everybody loves him. So I figured I'd put in all six wives because in each of their own ways, his marriages, all of his marriages were notorious. First of all, when we think of your coverage of notorious royal marriages, they're all in Europe, right? 
Yes, if you count Russia as well. We, we right. visit Catherine the Great and Nicholas and Alexandra in the book as well. On what basis did you choose the, the 32 royal couples that made the cut for your book? I was trying to find a balance between what many people think are the better-known couples, such as Henry VIII and his wives and Napoleon and Josephine and Marie Antoinette and Louis XVI, and some of the marriages that were less well-known. One of my favorites, because it was just so awful, was the marriage between George Ludwig of Hanover, who became George I of England, and his first cousin, Sophia Dorothea of Zell, and they hated each other on sight, and it was a dreadful marriage that ended in divorce. But it was so much fun to write about, and it changed the kingdom. He ended up in England without a queen. There was no queen of England when George I sat on the throne because his wife was imprisoned back, ex-wife was imprisoned back in Germany. So each of the marriages that I chose in some way had an impact on the history of their own kingdom or of their own country or on a grander scale, all of Europe. Well, you know, we can think in our recent history here in the United States how sex has had uh, impact on history in the White House. Um, give me some actual examples of how love and romance and sex has shaped European history. Well, France, for example, operated under a system called Salic law, which meant that only a male heir could inherit the throne. So daughters didn't count. And I open up with the very first marriage of Eleanor of Aquitaine and her fourth cousin, Louis VII, King of France. And they were married for several years, and she gave him two daughters. And they needed a dispensation from the Pope in order to marry because they were cousins. But after all this time when she didn't give him any sons and therefore there were no heirs directly from their bodies to the kingdom, they decided to get a divorce. And that changed the face of Europe because Louis needed a male heir for the throne, and he finally got one on his third wife. Of course, you have Henry VIII and his love affair with Anne Boleyn, which led to the creation of what we now know as the Anglican Church. Right. Everybody was Roman Catholic before then, and he was so desperate to get a divorce from Catherine of Aragon, his first wife, that he would do whatever it took, and that ultimately resulted in breaking with the Church of Rome and founding his own religion. Now, when you think about uh, royals and marriage and war, uh, it's important to remember that up until relatively modern times, there was this old regime notion that some were born to be rulers and others were born to be rulees. And at one point, four or five families essentially owned all of Europe, right? Yes, I would say so. And they had to marry carefully within You had to marry each other. Almost every royal marriage was a political and dynastic alliance. The point was to make friends. Yeah, so you have two parallel worlds. You've got the political needs of the royal family and to marry your children into the right households. Uh, I think, who was it, Maria Theresa had, what, 16 kids? Maria Theresa had about 16 kids, and one of them was Marie Antoinette, who, of course, married into the the Bourbon-French family, and another daughter married the king of Naples, who was a congenital idiot, but that didn't matter to Maria Theresa. Speaking of congenital idiots, weren't they all um, marrying, like, second cousins or first cousins? And was there a trend that there was a lot of, at least, minor deformities among the royals in Europe through history? Yes, that's what happened, Rick, because the gene pool got narrower and narrower. And as any ninth-grade biology teacher will tell you, inbreeding often leads to insanity. So you have first cousins marrying first cousins, and then their kids marry their first cousins, and on and on. The royal family in Spain was famous for their underbite, right? They all had an underbite. Yes, the Spanish bourbon underbite, yes. And if, and you, then, were the, if you were the court portraitist, you didn't want to exaggerate the underbite in the, in the royal not portraits. Not much. But if you look at all of the Habsburgs, because they had wed into the, the Spanish bourbons, they've got the underbite, too. Oh, do they? Well, they're related to the... To the uh, they're all they're related. All... And, and if you start looking at the Hanovers, they all have big bulging eyes. That's all true. All of the Georges, one, two, three, four, and Victoria, they all have those big bulgy eyes. And that's not just some uh, artist making his own little political commentary, but that's actually how they looked. That is actually how they looked. Wow. Now, I understand there was some um, sort of incestuous gossip about the royals of Germany and England leading into World War One. What's the story there? Do you know any of that? That? I don't the, the cover ki- that the Kaiser. in the Curious Royal Marriages. So. The, yeah, that's a little bit different than the topic of your book, but the Kaiser was related to... Uh, the Kaiser was Queen Victoria's first grandson, and she right. never liked him. And there was always tension between England and Germany. 
and because um, it was kind of even though cousins. Victoria married her kids, and they were all cousins, yeah. yeah. Even though Victoria married her her kids into the the German houses, mm-hmm. because they were expected to marry other Protestants, and Spain and Italy and France were all Catholic countries, so the English were running out of people to marry, so they were marrying the Germans. We're talking about the royals here. These, these royals are the kind of people who, you know, they've got everything. They, they don't ever make their own orange juice, that's for sure. Everything's done for them if they want it to be done. And they have to get married for political reasons or Protestants and Catholics or whatever. So they have a parallel world of their own personal romantic needs that's probably separated from their political sort of marriage reality. Talk just That's a why bit they about all that. had affairs. And it was, it was routine to have affairs, wasn't it? Absolutely. For the king. It was okay. Not for the queen. Okay. What was good for the gander was absolutely not good for the goose. A queen was supposed to be a well-dressed womb. And she mm. put up and shut up with the king's various mistresses. And some kings were more discreet about them than others. But uh, Catherine of Aragon was supposed to look the other way when Henry flaunted his passion for Anne Boleyn in front of her. But Catherine, of course, was in love with her husband and wasn't about to look the other way not just because she loved Henry, but because she was the daughter of Ferdinand and Isabella of Spain, and the alliance between Spain and England at the time was vital. So if she lost Henry, it also meant Spain lost England. Sounds like an incredible political soap opera. Unbelievable. It's political, it's sexual, (laughs) it's juicy. I write historical fiction as well, and I love making stuff up for a living as much as I enjoy writing the historical nonfiction. But I promise you, the more research you do. You don't need to anybody fiction, can huh? do this. You don't need to make <laughs> this stuff up. It's unbelievable. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm speaking with Leslie Carroll, and she's written a book called Notorious Royal Marriages, and it is a fascinating look at the reality of the political and romantic mixing up of Europe as Europe bungles its way through the centuries. In all of your studies, which of the monarchs, uh, kings or queens, was the, the most hypersexed? Charles II. He sired either 17 or 19 royal bastards, and he never did have a legitimate child. And that in itself changed the face of Europe because his brother James II, who inherited the throne, was a Catholic. So there are political consequences of these guys. Leslie, when you're thinking about notorious royal marriages and you want to spice it into your sightseeing plans, what are some of the palaces that you went to where you can kind of envision this? Uh, How can we make it part of our sightseeing? Well, you could actually do a royal bedrooms tour if you wanted to. I have been to Buckingham Palace, Windsor Castle. You could go to Balmoral uh, last fall. When I was doing my research, I visited Versailles and Malmaison, which was Josephine's home with Napoleon. You can go to the Hofburg and Schönbrunn. In your book, you write, there's almost a palpable sadness in Malmaison, the the palace of Emperor Napoleon and, and Josephine. It's turned into a museum now. I wanted to see it the way Josephine had envisioned it when she first, she was known for beautiful gardens that she put there. The whole, Malmaison means bad house in French, and nobody knows the origin of that because it was such long before Josephine bought it. But to me, it felt very much like the sad house. Of course, Napoleon famously divorced Josephine in 1810, but she got to keep Malmaison. And there was something in the air as I walked through the rooms, even though they're now set up as a museum of Napoleonic, but you can see many of the famous paintings that you'd see, even if you trolled Wikipedia, you'd see the famous, famous portraits of Napoleon and Josephine and some of their furniture and their furnishings and the beautiful swan-shaped bed that Hmm. Josephine loved and what she died in. And I went outside afterwards. It was a very gray day. And the facade of the building is very gray, and there there was an incredible palpable sadness in the mm. air. And I went to look at what was left of the Rose Garden, and being in late September, there really wasn't much. But I took a photograph of what I thought was a white rose, and when I came home and put the photos on the computer and enlarged it, I saw that it had little pink flecks, tiny dots all over it. And to me, it just felt like sort of a survivor of the French Revolution, almost this beautiful pure rose speckled with blood. And it became a metaphor for me of the history of France at the time. Wow, that's beautiful. Of the revolution and the terror and everything that led to the Napoleonic Empire and ultimately to his speckled white rose. Wow. 
And that's just outside of Paris, Malmaison, right? Yes, it is. It's very easy for anybody to get to, even if they don't speak French. And also just outside of Paris, of course, is Versailles. And I understand in Versailles, one wing was for the king and, and one wing was for the queen. Yes, they had their own wings and they met in the middle on special occasions. And for the queen to come over to the king's... The king would visit the queen. And there's a marvelous story about this because Marie Antoinette and her husband, who at the time she married him, he was the Dauphin of France, which meant he was the heir to the throne. He was the grandson of Louis XV. And he became Louis XVI about four years after they got married. And Maria Theresa strongly felt that husbands and wives should share a bedroom all the time. She absolutely despised the French tradition where the husband would have to tiptoe out in the middle of the night, followed by umpteen servants, and Mm -hmm. and go to the queen's bedchamber. She thought it was terribly unnatural that Marie Antoinette and her husband were not sharing a bedroom every night. And she said, just, it's so embarrassing. Well, no wonder you're still a virgin. She would write her daughter scathing letters (laughs) from Vienna telling her what she should and shouldn't be doing in the bedroom and that, that having a separate bedroom from Louis was a terrible, unnatural idea. And how, how could she possibly get an heir? And Maria Theresa had a point because, again, France was a country where only a male could rule. And if Marie Antoinette did not make a baby very quickly, and a male baby at that, and she didn't get one until uh, her second try, she could be sent home. Queens yeah. could be sent home if they did not have babies. As I said before, they were meant to be a well-dressed womb. The well-dressed womb. I, I think that's a, a, a great phrase. <laughs> By the way, I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Leslie Carroll, and Leslie's written a book called Notorious Royal Marriages. Leslie, of all the royal couples you studied, which famous royal couple do you think had true love? Who was happiest just as man and wife? There are two in my book. Uh, first, I would say Victoria and Albert, even oh, though... Yeah. It was an arranged match, and they were first cousins. It was love at second sight with them. Victoria, at first, when she met Albert, wasn't sure she wanted to marry at all, and she wasn't sure that she wanted to marry her first cousin, wasn't sure that was such a good idea, wasn't sure she'd feel for Albert. She said that she was worried that she might like him as a brother and a friend, but not as a lover. She actually said that at second glance, he came over for a second audition, so to speak, mm-hmm. and it was absolute passion. She writes in her diary, and here, one of the things I love about Queen Victoria is the young Victoria is not the dour little prude that everybody yeah, thinks I, of when I they just think of Victoria. Picture. She was a I, sexy girl. And, oh boy, she talks about their wedding night, and, and the night after, all of this is in her diaries, and, and I incorporated a lot of it into wow. my chapter in Notorious Royal Marriages. I read that only Albert could call her Vicky. Oh, that I didn't know, Yeah, but I'm not surprised. I'm sure she was not amused if they took familiarities. And we know uh, Victoria from her black outfit, and, and I think she Absolutely. set new standards in mourning after Albert, her beloved Albert, She died. vowed to rule her empire the way Albert would have done, and all of the wow. prudishness and the priggishness came from him. Hmm. His mother ran away with a younger man when he was five years old, left the family. So that really colored his his view of women. But I want to share one lovely tidbit that's from the book and from Victoria's diaries about her passion for Albert. This is the second time he came to England to visit, and the two of them are watching a royal military parade. And she writes in her diary, she couldn't concentrate on the, the horseman parading past her because she noticed that Albert was wearing white cashmere breeches with nothing under them. Vicky said that? Vicky said that in her diary. That's what she was looking at, Albert's crotch, when she should have been reviewing the military parade. So that's the Queen Victoria that I want people to know from notorious royal marriages. She was delicious. The woman who inspired the, quote, Victorian age. Exactly. Amazing. The woman who, who would deny that, that any other woman had such a vulgar appendage as a leg <laughs> was uh, wrote in her diary how delighted she was the day after wow. uh, their marriage when Albert put on her stockings for her. That's fascinating to humanize these royals. When you go to London, you can find a lot of Victoriana and a lot of history about Victoria and her love for Albert. When he died, I understand, they used to have all of those um, wrought iron railings and so on around England used to be gaily painted, and she just dictated that everything should be painted black, black uh, in sadness. Black. I didn't know what the genesis of that was, and but there's certainly all, the all black, black railings now. Today, yeah. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Leslie Carroll, who writes Notorious Royal Marriages, and Leslie has devoted a chapter to each of the 32 European royal couples that she figures is most interesting from a 
love and marriage and intrigue point of view. Leslie, if we're doing our traveling and we're, we're, we're dreaming up a trip and we want to splice some of these uh, ideas into our sightseeing, give us some tips on where we might go in order to uh, enjoy this slice of European history. Well, if you want to make a trip of royal bedrooms alone, I rattled off here you can have Buckingham Palace, Windsor Castle, Balmoral, if they'll let you in, Versailles, Malmaison, you can go to Vienna and visit the Hofburg and Schönbrunn, you can visit Hampton Court and follow in the footsteps of the Tudor bedrooms, a Brighton pavilion, and visit where George IV would have slept. You could also, if you have a macabre bent, visit their final resting places. If you're in Paris, I'd suggest going to the Basilica of Saint-Denis, where also some coronations took place, of the French kings. If you're in England, you can visit Westminster Abbey. If they do let you in at Windsor, there are Frogmore Chapel and St. George's Chapel is where several of the British royals are buried. And if you're a big fan of Nicholas and Alexandra and the Romanoffs, you can visit the Cathedral of Saints Peter and Paul in St. Petersburg. And if it's Napoleon who's your idol, you can visit Les Invalides in Paris. And of course, at, at Les Invalides, you've got that incredible tomb just for Napoleon under the big dome surrounded yes. by his museum. Also, if you're interested in the Habsburgs, you can go to the Kaisergruft, which is the place where the emperors of uh, the Habsburg realm that's right. were all buried. Yes. And that's quite a, a beautiful place to, to check out if you like royal tombs. And you can also visit St. Paul's and Westminster Abbey. Leslie Carroll writes Notorious Royal Marriages. Leslie, thanks so much for a fascinating insight into European history. You are very welcome. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick and Isaac Kaplan-Wilner. Thanks to Steve Camerano and Aaron Harding and to the Radio Foundation in New York for their help this week. We'll notify you by email when we're ready to record our next set of radio interviews. That's how you can join us as a caller with our guests or chat with Rick in an open phone segment. There's a link for sending us your email address in the radio section of ricksteves.com. And we'll see you again next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by the European Union Delegation to the USA. The European Union received the 2012 Nobel Peace Prize for promoting peace, human rights, and democracy. Information available at euintheus.org. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. His classic Europe Through the Back Door, freshly updated this year, teaches the skills of smart travel. At Rick Steves' online travel store, you'll also find guidebooks for France, Paris, Provence and the Riviera, and Rick's French phrasebook. To learn more about Rick's guidebooks for France and beyond, visit the travel store at ricksteves.com.